morning. And guess what his response was? Thank you. Thank you. It was far less enthusiastic than that. His response was something along the lines of, well, that's boring. And I was like, thanks, man. Cool. Nine-year-olds. Fun. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, our conference week is coming up. I encourage you guys to put that on the calendar. Um, the Soul Care Night, the topic that we're doing is going to be on a calm presence and how to, how to be a calm presence in a, in a cultural environment that is just anxious and worried. So how can we be a calm presence in the midst of that? Preached on it a couple weeks ago. We'll kind of add some more practical uh, practices and stuff that we can do to that at Soul Care Night. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon for today. Would you guys join me? Father, Lord, we just thank you for your presence with us, that, Lord, you dwell within us through the, your Holy Spirit uh, within the church. So, Lord, we thank you for your presence. Lord, what a privilege and honor it is to share in your presence, to know that you are with us, and, Lord, to, to worship you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, our campaign that I am wrapping up my portion of today is called The Third Way. Uh, our guest speakers the next couple of weeks will kind of bring home some of these ideas that we've been talking about, but this is my last, this is my last swing in the third, the third Way campaign for, uh, yeah, yeah, this is my last one. So I'm sad. I love this campaign. It was a good one. Okay. <laughs> so in this campaign, what we're talking about is how to live the way of Jesus in a polarized world. Uh, our, our culture is just increasingly more and more polarized. And within a polarized world, what we're tempted to do, and the temptation for all of us, is to accept an ideology or a group, a tribe, whatever we want to call it, wholesale. So the, the, the pressure, the social pressure is that you have, if you accept one part, of this ideology, then you have to accept the whole thing or else you are ostracized from the group. And this is most notable in our politics of today. Uh, whether you are in the Democratic Party or in the Republican Party, you feel as if you have to accept everything wholesale, right? But the privilege and the joy and honor for us as Christians is that we already have allegiance to our King Jesus. And so we have accepted the way of Jesus wholesale. And so what ideologies or groupings we identify with outside of that, we can agree with them in as much as they agree with the way of Jesus. And then we reject the aspects of those ideologies that do not agree with the way of Jesus. That's what it means to have a supreme uh, allegiance to Jesus is we follow him first. So we follow the third way of Jesus. Where we find agreement with one ideology, we can accept it. Where we find disagreement, then we must reject it. Our big idea for the whole campaign has been for Christians, our way of life and our thinking must first be informed by Jesus. Again, this isn't anything mind-blowing for Christians when you read it. But in practicality, what tends to happen is we just get so just rushed with information, with uh, we just get into the world and the culture of what is going on around us. And before we know it, we've subtly, slowly started to accept certain aspects of culture and life and things that are true. And we've started to practice things like hating our enemies that don't actually align with the way of Jesus. So we must go back always to the way of Jesus, the way he lived and what he taught as being our guide. The image that I've been kind of trying to just infuse into your mind is you just walking along a dirt path, eyes down, 
close on the heels of Jesus. You're just following him. Wherever Jesus goes, you go. What he says is truth, and you follow him. All right, so today we're going to wrap up this campaign with another aspect of living in a polarized world is last week we talked about loving your enemies. So if you tend to demonize your enemies, the flip side of that is you often tend to idolize your heroes or the people who are in your tribe representing your ideology. And so, perhaps you guys remember this a couple years ago, or this was last year, uh, at a conference, a CPAC conference in 2021, somebody made a golden statue of Donald Trump (laughs) and brought it to CPAC and brought it to this event. Now, to be clear, just put your minds at ease, I'm not saying anything about Donald Trump or his policies or the politics surrounding Donald Trump, not saying anything about that. Uh, What I am saying, however, is that some people idolize him. Okay? I don't think that's really disputable (laughs) based on the fact that they made a golden statue of him. Okay? Normally, when I give this talk, my my application is going to be worship and worship of Jesus, just to let you guys know where I'm headed. Uh, Normally, when I give this talk, I have to, like, build some bridges and some connections and some through lines for you. Say things like, you know, in the ancient world, they used to make statues, of their gods, and they had to, and they would bow down and worship them and sing praises to them. And then I saw this last year, and I was like, oh, they did my job for me, all right? I don't have to build through lines for you anymore, because they made a literal golden statue. So in the Old Testament Exodus story, we have the golden calf. Today, we have the golden trump, right? <laughs> my only point, again, is We tend to idolize whatever takes your devotion, whatever takes your your love and your affection and your allegiance is what you worship. And we all worship. So what we worship and we idolize is what is ultimate in our life. God must be the ultimate one whom we worship the one who we owe our allegiance, our affection, our longing, everything. He must be supreme in that. He must be supreme. Now, the big idea for today is that we are all worshipers. We all worship. All of us do. God is the only one worthy of our worship. Okay, We as human beings are all worshipers. Romans 1 makes this clear. That if you aren't worshiping God, you are worshiping something or someone else. There is no such thing as a worshipless state for human beings. If you aren't worshiping God, you're, in the language of Romans, you have exchanged worship of the creator for worship of created things. So even a staunch atheist worships. They give honor and reverence and homage to something or someone supremely. And whatever that thing is that they honor supremely that has the bulk of their affection and love and devotion, that is what they worship. So if you don't worship God, you may worship yourself, which is most common. If you don't worship God, you worship things like your job, or you worship your kids, or your spouse, or the spouse you don't have yet, or the kids you don't have yet, or the job you don't have yet, or the house you don't have yet with a retirement that you don't have yet. 
your stuff, whatever takes the bulk of your devotion, whatever you are willing to sacrifice the most for, that is the thing that you worship as supreme. And we all worship. But only God is worthy of our worship. And so we must direct our affection, our attention, our allegiance, our desire, our worship to him as supreme. None of those other things are worthy of our worship. And so when we give our worship to them, they will inevitably disappoint. We will put a burden on them that they are not able to bear. And they will inevitably disappoint us and our worship. St. Augustine once said, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. This is what he's getting at. He's praying a prayer to God. Until we rest in God, we will remain restless, worshiping other things that can never effectively hold our worship. So what's the answer? What's the answer to our struggle for idolatry in this culture? I think a major part of it for Christians is to so magnify the supremacy of Christ in our mind's eye that all of the other things or the people or the stuff that we are tempted to idolize just pale in comparison to him. For so many of us, when we close our eyes and imagine Jesus, our vision of him is too small. <laughs> I'd actually say that for all of us. <laughs> because no matter what, we cannot exaggerate Jesus and his glory and his majesty and his splendor. And so for all of us, whatever we imagine Jesus as, it's too small. This is exactly Paul's approach in the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians, there's this heresy that's known as the Colossian heresy. It's kind of stumped uh, scholars for centuries now. It's likely some, as, as to specifically what it was, it's likely some syncretism. It's got some Jewish elements to it. It's got some Roman theology in it. It's got some Eastern mysticism to it, most likely. Uh, similar in those days to what today we would call like a, like a spiritualism, like a blending of folks today. They tend to take different aspects of different religions. Like we'll take a few Eastern religion ideas from Buddhism. We'll take some from Christianity, and then we'll take some from our secular world, mix it in with some of my own thoughts, and you've got this really inconsistent, really incoherent cocktail of a worldview. But that's what people tend to do today, and that's kind of similar to what they were doing in this day and age. They were worshiping angels. There was this harsh asceticism and harsh treatment of your body to, to give an appearance of holiness, but it wasn't really effective. And in response to this heresy, the bulk of the letter of Colossians is the Apostle Paul trying to just display and present and communicate in words that are insufficient the glory and the majesty of Jesus. He's saying, stop worshiping angels when you can worship the creator of everything. What are you doing? Is kind of Paul's plea. Jesus is so much greater. Why are you worshiping these other things? Or even the emperor. Okay, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> This is kind of the conclusion of what he's talking about just prior to this, but it leads into what we're going to cover today. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, talking about God, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In verse 21, he'll pick up this redemption theme again, but here 
he's going to kind of take a bit of a turn. So he mentions Jesus, <laughs> the, the redemption, the rescue that God has brought to us through Jesus, how he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He has forgiven our sins. And I say this often, but when you read through the letters of Paul, you come up against this time and time again. He just pauses at different points and he's like, he just can't help himself. He can't help, but when he mentions Jesus, to just go on a, a good rant about how awesome Jesus is. He just can't stop. He's like, I mentioned Jesus. I gotta, I gotta tell you how awesome he is. And so he tells them how amazing Jesus really is. And even that in and of itself gives us should be a little bit of a check on our heart and our soul. Like, what gets you excited? <laughs> Have you ever like just started talking about Jesus and found yourself like, man, I'm I'm really getting I'm really getting fired up about Jesus. He's pretty great. Which is another good check on us. Like if you get more fired up about political stuff than you do when you're talking about your love and affection and devotion for Jesus, that's a sign that maybe Jesus isn't sitting on the throne of my life because these other things are more important to me if they're stirring up more emotion in you than Jesus does. Just a thought for you to check yourself on. So now Paul goes on this, on this rant. <laughs> it's a good rant. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He just starts talking about the glory and majesty of Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God. What he means by image there is that he displays God. He's the fullest revelation of God. Now, again, he's going to talk about the supremacy of Christ. So there might be some hyperlink back to the Genesis uh, creation story about how humans are created in the image of God. But notice here he says the Son is the image of God. He's not saying that the Son is in the image of God. No, the Son is the image of God because he is God. The fullness of God dwells in him, which he's going to say in just a moment here. So there might be an authority, because in, in the Genesis creation narrative, it's the image of God on all humans that gives us our position of authority in creation, that we are stewards of creation. So again, he's talking here about Jesus and his majesty and his glory and his rule over all creation. So it could be a hint of that, but most likely it's just indicating the, uh, that he is revealing God to us. The firstborn over all creation. Now, not literally born. The firstborn in this, in this culture meant a position of authority yet again. So it's kind of indicating the same idea. The firstborn would uh, inherit the majority of their father's stuff, but also their position of authority in this culture. It was their job. It was their role to uh, take care of the family. And just as a shameless plug for my doctrine course, um, this isn't saying that there was this, <laughs> that Jesus was eternally begotten, okay? As uh, the eternal generation is the doctrine in the Catholic Church that says that there was uh, a time in eternity past where Jesus proceeded from the Father, right? We don't have to go that far. It's a, this is a metaphor for talking about the authority of Christ, okay? There never was a time when Jesus was not. He is God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He always was and always will be. This is why doctrine is important. Okay, verse 16. For in him, now he's going to explain what he means by those statements, right? That's what for means. For in him all things were created. What does he mean by that? Things in heaven and things on earth. 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus is the agent of creation. Similar to what John says in the first chapter of his gospel. Jesus is the agent of creation. All things were created through him and for him. And all things, creation is meant to reflect the glory of Christ and the glory of God. And he didn't just create the things that we see. He created even the spiritual things. Remember, they were worshiping angels, saying, why are you worshiping created beings when you can worship the creator of those beings? Jesus created all of creation, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, those in the Jewish theology, the, the evil spiritual beings were, also, were generally thought of as animated and were working behind the scenes in, in often evil governments who were bringing corruption, chaos, death, and disorder into the world. So we don't, the rulers and authorities, thrones and powers, those tend to indicate spiritual authorities at work within the governments of the world. They've all been created by Jesus, is what he's saying. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, so Jesus is the agent of creation. He's also the sustainer of creation. He created everything. He sustains it. And so now he's going to transition. Not only is Jesus the creator, the sustainer of all of the created world, but he's also the originator, the creator of this new creation that he is bringing and that he has started in the church. He's the head of the body, meaning the position of authority within the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He was the first one to die and conquer death by rising in glory and defeating death so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Why? So that Jesus might display his supremacy, that he is far greater than anything or anyone else in all of creation. And he is making all this creation new. And the evidence of that is to be in the lives of his people, those who have been made new by him. They are the start of this new creation. That means everything in creation, everything in the church is supposed to point back to the supremacy of Jesus. It's to reflect the glory of Christ. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus was fully God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That Jesus is reconciling all creation back to God. Creation in its sinful state is being reconciled back to God through the cross, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's only in Jesus that we can be reconciled to God. And Jesus' work of reconciliation is cosmic in nature. The gospel is not just a story about how I can get out of hell free, personally. The gospel is a bigger story of Jesus reconciling all of creation back to God. And we get to take part in that. And we get to be part of this new creation that Jesus is starting and bringing about. Band, you guys can come and get set up. 
So our big idea today is we are all worshipers. <laughs> so we ought not deny that we worship. We do. We all worship something. What do we worship as ultimate? God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. Paul's plea to the Colossian church is, guys, stop worshiping the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Stop. Why would you worship them when Jesus is so great? And what he's trying to do is just display how awesome Jesus is, which words will never do. But he's trying to give us this picture of how great Jesus is. And so to stir something in our hearts, to worship him more, to give him more glory. This is the antidote to idolatry. Why would we worship any other ideology, any other created thing, when we can truly worship the creator? whose majesty and glory and splendor is far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. That's in part what our worship is all about, is to help give us language for this, is for us as a community of those who have been made new by the work of Jesus, who have experienced the reconciling of our sinful nature and our humanity back to God. When we collectively come to Jesus to worship him, to Tell him how awesome he is. That's what we're doing. We're helping give you language to worship God. Because all of creation is meant to bring him worship and glory and honor. And so we're just doing what we were created to do <laughs> together in community. So we're going to worship him together. I invite you guys to stand and sing with us and to just give praise and glory to Jesus. Let me pray for us first. Lord, Jesus, we thank you that you are so glorious, that our words will never fully describe who you are. And yet, Lord, to the best of our ability now, we as a community are just going to praise you. We're going to give you glory and honor. For you are God. Fullness of the deity dwells in you. Lord, you are the creator of all things. You are the sustainer of all things. Lord, you have reconciled us back to God through your blood shed on the cross for us. Lord, it is an honor to worship you as ultimate and supreme, because that is who you are. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. If you guys need prayer, Helen's in the back. She'd love to pray with you. Lord, our worship is not misplaced in you, because you are the greatest being who exists. That, Lord, whatever accolades, whatever praise we give you, whatever verbiage comes from our mouth, the devotion that we give to you, the longing in our heart for you, Lord, will never be enough for how great you truly are. You are so far beyond us. We can't even imagine how great you are. We can't even imagine how powerful you are, Lord. And yet you are also near to us in Jesus. That you came to this earth. You suffered. You died. You revealed God to us, Jesus, and how you lived and what you said and how you loved us enough to die for us while we were still sinners. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who indwells us, the presence of God living within us, pointing us to Jesus, assuring us that we are in you, Christ, and that we know you. God, you are just so awesome privilege to worship you and to honor you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. I'm not going to talk long so we can get back to the application of worshiping God together. Again, big idea is we're all worshipers. God is the only one who's worthy of our worship. So Paul's appeal here and my appeal to you is the same. Don't give your allegiance to another. Anything else, even if it is something or someone good, don't give your ultimate supreme allegiance to anyone other than to God. They are not big enough to handle it. You will put a burden on them that they can't bear if it is another person. And your worship will be misdirected. And your soul will be disordered and disoriented. This temptation to idolatry is not new to us in our politically polarized world. It was the same in Jesus' day. It was similar in the immediate generations following the apostles and Christ. We're going to read an example of this, a brief example, in a book called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna around 155 AD. He was old, an old man at this point. (laughs) And he's arrested for preaching Jesus and rejecting the lordship of Caesar. Because to claim Jesus as Lord was to claim that he was of a lordship higher and greater than Caesar. And that the Romans weren't cool with. And there met him the sheriff, Herod. Okay, not Herod from the Bible, a different Herod. And his father, Nicetus. I don't know if that's how you say it, but whatever. Who removed removed him into their carriage and tried to persuade him, sitting by his side and saying, Now what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar? and in offering incense as worship to Caesar, and so on, and thus saving yourself. If he were to just say, Lord, Caesar is Lord, and offer incense and, the, and do their worship rituals, he'd be set free. He at first made no reply, but since they persisted, he said, I do not intend to do what you advise. <laughs> so plain, so simple. Accordingly, he was led before the proconsul who asked him if he were the man himself, that is, if he is Polycarp, and he said yes. And when he confessed, the proconsul tried to persuade him, saying, have respect to thine age, and so forth, according to their customary form, swear by the genius of Caesar. Genius of Caesar was an oath invented under Julius Caesar to swear loyalty to Caesar. Certain days were even set apart for the worship of Caesar, to worship the emperor's genius, they called it. Repent, say, away with the atheists. They called Christians atheists in this time because they only worshipped one God, not many. But the proconsul urged him and said, Swear, and I will release thee. Curse the Christ. And Polycarp said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? If we were to keep reading in the story, they burned Polycarp alive at the stake. Temptation for him was to save his own life by saying, Lord, Caesar, you are Caesar, and burning incense to Caesar. The temptation for us today is similar, to offer our heart, our allegiance, our loyalty to someone, to anyone other than Jesus. And my prayer for all of us is that we would say, like Polycarp says here, I have served him my whole life. 
and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? So the story of a man who had such a glorious image of Jesus and a picture of Jesus in his mind's eye, who had experienced the faithfulness and the comfort of Christ throughout his life, and he said, who's Caesar? Why would I exchange loyalty to Jesus for Caesar? That's a bad deal for me. Jesus is way better. Jesus is far more glorious. He is the creator. Caesar is created. Why? Why would I give my allegiance to another? And for him, it meant death. But he was willing to do that because Jesus was so great. Don't exchange worship of Jesus for a cheap substitute. Nothing compares to the glory and the majesty of Jesus. He is God in flesh. He is Lord of all creation. All things were created through him and for him. In him, all things hold together. He is the first to rise from the dead, defeating death and giving humanity hope for life after death. He has redeemed those who are in Christ from the curse of sin and death. If you are in Christ, he has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son, God's beloved son, Jesus. In him, our sins are forgiven. God is reconciling all of creation to himself. He begins with you, the elect, if you are in Christ. When we are enemies of God, he reconciled us by his death into his body, the church, and presented us holy and blameless. That's just this passage of how awesome Jesus is. Why worship another? I read a quote from Francis Chan this week that summarized it well. He said, isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can give the highest accolades, give all of yourself to him, and you cannot exaggerate how great God is. So I invite you to just take a moment right now and just tell God how awesome he is. Use the words of Colossians 1. Use whatever words come to mind. Just tell God how awesome he is. And make this a regular practice in your private worship.
Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise and you are the only one worthy of our praise. So Lord, we give it freely to you. Lord, we bow before you as our King, our Creator, our Sustainer, the Author, Perfector of our faith. You've given us eternal life. You've given us newness of life. And so, Lord, we worship you. Lord, teach us by your Spirit to worship you, not only today in community together with one another, but tomorrow as we pray and as we meet with you in private. Give us a heart of worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing a few more songs together in praise to our Savior.